The ones who have sex in the movie always die. That's how yes. it's always worked. Tragically, they live a moment of beautiful sin to be <laughs> taken away <laughs> by a killer with a machete at some point. Oh my god. Hello and welcome to the Big Film Buffet. I'm Alexi Toliopoulos and with me as always is... Oh, it's me, Jen Fricker. <laughs> I want to surprise you there. <laughs> oh my God. And that's not the only startles and spooks we're getting this month because this month on the Big Film Buffet, it's Fear Month. And Alexi, what does Fear Month mean to you? Fear Month means the absolute world to me because in celebration of the brand new Fear Street trilogy of slasher films based on the book series from horror legend R.L. Stein, the Fear Street films will be coming out on Netflix each Friday over the next couple of weeks. And the really cool thing about these films that I'm very into is each entry takes place during a different spooky era full of horror. Yes, you might have caught the first episode of Fear Month last week when we were talking about Fear Street Part 1, 1994. This week, it's the second of the three films, Fear Street Part 2, 1978. A witch, the town curse. I thought there was a way to end it. But now I know there is no end. This is July 12th, summer of 1978, the first day of camp. A week later, my sister was dead. So if you haven't seen the first in the Fear Street franchise that came out last week, set in 1994, give it a watch before diving into this podcast or listen to last week's episode because we are going to be talking about some details that might be better off as a surprise for you. Yes, exactly. But as anticipated, part two of the Fear Street trilogy picks up where part one left off. The kids have uh, survived the Shadyville Mall massacre. They've Mm -hmm. tracked down Ziggy Berman, the adult version of her, because they want some answers. She managed to survive one of the original Shadyville massacres at a little spooky camp called Camp Nightwing back in the 70s, and they have gone to her to figure out how they can break this curse. So in order to break the curse, we go back to Camp Nightwing, back to the 70s, to find out exactly what happened. I love that as a premise, that we've got Gillian Jacobs, an actor I really adore, recounting her story, slowly dripping us back in time to the 1970s. There really kind of is nothing else like it. I'm such a sucker for this stuff. As you can tell, I'm glowing just talking about this and I've got another entry into my summer camp massacre of slasher film canon. I actually even prefer this to the first film. I really like the direction this takes. It gets a little bit sillier, a little bit spookier even. And honestly, one of the coolest things about it, a lot more bloodier and even sexier than the first one too. Yeah, I know. A lot more sex in this one. I feel like this one, where the first one was like a pretty straight up 90s horror film, Mm -hmm. this one's almost like a supernatural adventure. Yeah, that's something I like about this too. The curse has become a little bit more apparent. There's something even scarier about setting it a little bit further in the past. Like it's a little bit more looking back. Feels a lot more like legend being told as well, which I think adds something to the like grandness of it all, like the mystique of it being this trilogy set over different time periods. Yeah. That kind of foreboding energy of going further back 
and seeing how long a curse has been permeating the world of Shadyville just feels more intense. Yet, I got to say, the charm of this film, it's completely delightful as well. It's so fun. Like, the co- I mean, anything set in the 70s, the costumes are going to be... Really fun. The soundtrack is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just the kind of squeaky cleanness of American youth or the idea of American youth in the 70s means that turn into horror and gore and violence makes it hit kind of so much deeper. Uh, you're spot on. And I think one of the other things that is so satisfying about watching a movie like this Because it is fresh. I've never seen a trilogy of films come so close together like this and feel... Each connected, but each one feel like a unique entry as well. But what really satisfies me about this coming so close together is you do see that connective tissue. There are those things that bring these movies together, whether they be locations or settings or certain props. But there are like those little motifs that carry on. And when you see them pay off, especially going back in time... There's something about that that just is incredibly satisfying as an audience member to just be like, oh, I'm seeing something quite holistic come together in an almost, dare I say, to talk about one of the great trilogies of all time in a Back to the Future kind of way. How so? What do you mean by the Back to the Future kind of way? Well, you know, in Back to the Future, how when Marty goes back, he goes back in the car park of the Twin Pines Mall, and then he goes back and it's a farmhouse back in the day. And when he's leaving, he destroys one of the Twin Pines. He gets back to the future and it's a Lone Pine Mall now. There's lots of stuff like this in that without playing with timelines and stuff, but where you see things pay off in that kind of way. I don't want to get into spoilers too much because I found it incredibly satisfying when we are in a location and by the end of the film, we realize that location has completely transformed by the year 1994 and it's a completely different setting, but it is still the same geographical pinpoint on the map. Yeah, I also think there's something really interesting about telling a horror story kind of back to front in a way you know what's going to happen right because mm. they kind of re- reference it in the first movie a bunch of kids get killed so then it puts more importance on the relationships between some of the survivors mm-hmm. and also getting to know more about sarah fear the witch the curse that she's put on shadyville why you know where that came from I think you've really hit something on the head here of what works to me about this movie because there is a freshness to like the unconventionality of a story like this being told this way. With a horror slasher film, you do have the expectation that there is going to be one survivor and often you can kind of pick who it is. But in this one, you know who the survivor is. It's Ziggy, the character played by Gillian Jacobs in the future and played by Sadie Sink from Stranger Things uh, in the past in 1978. So All of the tension is not around who survives, but more about what exactly happens. What do I need to remember when I get back into the future to figure out the curse of Sarah Fear? And all of that, it's about building the context, which then builds attention, which I was like really thrilled by. It's what had me at the edge of my seat was going like, okay, what do I need to learn about? What do I need to remember here? And who are the characters and what are their relationships to each other? Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of why it's good to watch this on Netflix because you can just binge it like I did. Like I Mm. got to the end of um, 1994 and I was like, okay, like I need these answers right Mm -hmm. now. And it just takes you straight into the next one. 
gives you a little recap if you need. And also, that's that one week of tension waiting for it to drop. I've never had that for a movie before. And that's what's kind of like got me on edge is that little bit of waiting time between the films coming out. Let's talk about the cast a little bit here because I really love Gillian Jacobs. I think that she is such a cool actor. We kind of know her from the Netflix show Love, which is like a great play on the romantic comedies. And then we've seen her in stuff like Community. And she's got this real like kind of rebellious spunk about her. And I think that's like such a good energy to bring into a movie like this because it gives you an expectation of who this character is. And seeing her starting off the film trapped in this home surrounded by clocks in this almost like Desmond from Lost kind of like paranoid OCD kind of way of like having to do all these things to keep her mind at ease, to keep her survival skills in check. And I think it's interesting to have an actor like that who's kind of like this interesting rebellious person feels so trapped. And that's why I think it's such clever casting to have Sadie Sink playing that character with the energy that we know Gillian Jacobs to really have and possess back in the 1970s. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's really fun and it really is kind of a movie about Sadie Sink as a child and her relationship with her sister and... It's kind of interesting, you know, you don't necessarily watch a horror film for these kind of family bonding type of themes, but I think Sadie Sink really sells it and really sells feeling like an outsider and feeling like she's out of control in the world around her. It is just another layer added to this and another investment in this character and another investment in the trilogy where you are just like, ah. I really care about this person. I really want to know why and how they survived and how this young kid gets to be that Gillian Jacobs portrayal later on who is so traumatised and who is so locked in by these fears. And I think it's a testament to both the cast, the director, and also even to the writing of these films as well that going from one film where we've developed these bonds with these characters as an audience, where we've loved the teenagers in that first film and want to see them survive, to then completely change setting and be introduced to a whole new slate of actors and characters and then immediately begin to feel that investment in them. And I think that's just like a testament to how this film plays with those genre expectations and how it gives us a little bit of that space and time to just feel a bond with those characters and see them grow a little bit before the gruesome killings start. I think it works really well. And it kind of ties into one of the things I really do love about this movie, why I connect with it, is I just love the way this film looks. It's got that 70s sepia tone of like burnt gold, giving us that nostalgic summer, like looking back at old photos. When you look back at those like kind of hazy old photos from the 70s, and it feels like it's in such contrast to that 90s setting of the first film. It gives you those moments that slow down and it feels like, almost like if Dazed and Confused was a horror film. Mm. And I would say that works especially well when that mixtape soundtrack kicks in once again with this and we're treated to like the eight track of like 1970s classic hits. Yeah, the music budget on this movie must be insane because, (laughs) I mean, you've got a main character called Ziggy, so of course you're going to get some David Bowie in there. A few different tracks from David Bowie, but obviously one that kind of really underlines a character development in one of the main characters is the man who sold the world. And Alexa, you kind of notice a bridge between this movie and the 90s movie. 
Yeah, that's what I really liked about it. I think it's such a clever pick because that song's a David Bowie original. It's one that we all love. But in the 90s, it had that big cover by Nirvana, right? From those MTV Unplugged sessions. So it's kind of like that perfect bridging song because it has like this installation of popular culture back in the 90s. And then it takes us back into the 70s with the Bowie original. I thought that was just so clever to me because it just feels like that perfect song that lives in two eras. Mm, yeah, for sure. I just love Don't Fear the Reaper, like <laughs> playing through this whole movie by Blue Oyster Cult. It's such an on-the-nose pick for a movie mm-hmm. about kids getting murdered that I loved it. I was like, this is fun. Like, this knows that it's not a serious movie. I don't know. It made me really smile. <laughs> Uh, I think that's part of it. Like the soundtrack to this movie really makes me smile. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head with like that kind of like proper needle droppy. Sometimes it's the most obvious song for the scene that works well in these, especially when we go back to the 70s, because it's just a little bit more time removed where like songs could be considered corny back then and even have like a nostalgic corniness about them. But now when we look back, they just bring a smile to your face because there's joy in them. Yeah. There's a moment where Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain Tennille, which I love, but it's such a corny song, is played like so well to like create who the character is, that this is the kind of like silly pop music that they like. But even more, just after that, there's like one of the first slayings of the movie that is played to first cut is the deepest. And I was just like, come on, dude. That is so fun. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then I just feel like the other music kind of in it, there's some scenes where they're kind of exploring some ruins and it's more of cinematic strings, which I don't think we really got in the 90s one. It was kind of more eerie kind of synths and stuff like that. And it is kind of really playing to like genre conventions, which I really love. I really love that each of these films is a different distillation of a horror genre. Like the first one was like this kind of self-knowing 90s teen horror slasher, bit more cynical, I think, in its approach to things. And then part two is this silly, in a way, summer camp horror movie that like you obviously are so about but then also does kind of turn into this supernatural adventure Mm, film as well totally i think that's what's interesting to me about it and like why it's kind of like a trip down memory lane like watching all of these movies together because i think that the first film it captures that idea of those meta horrors of the 90s like your screams and your faculties and i guess stuff like urban legend as well And that was like the revitalization of that genre that had like kind of slowly fallen out of love with the horror audience by just being a bit samey over and over again and refreshed it. But here we're going back to like the origins of the slasher movies. The slasher movies really kick off in guess what year, Jen? What year do you think the slasher films really kicked off? Uh, I'm going to take a punt and say 1978. They do ah! indeed. Correct, Agungo. Ten points to Jen. <laughs> I was wondering why they picked 1978 out of all mm. of the 70s. Well, I would have to say it's because the movie by John Carpenter, Halloween, came out in that year. There's arguments around it, but I would say it's the first big slasher film that really hits big and establishes a lot of the tropes of the genre with the idea of the final girl being kind of pure and a lot of her friends being killed because they are maybe a little bit less pure. The ones who have sex in the movie always die. That's how it's always worked. I was trying to be generous with the way I described them, but yes, the ones that have sex, tragically, they live a moment of 
beautiful sin to be taken away <laughs> by a killer with a machete at some point. Oh, my God. And then as well in like the 70s and 80s especially when we really hit big with that genre becoming an all-encompassing thing for horror, we get a, this little kind of subgenre of a subgenre of summer camp horror slashes. Really, the biggest one, of course, is Friday the 13th, set at Camp Crystal. Then you've got stuff like Sleepaway Camp, which is a very weird movie that I kind of love. The Burning is another one. All of these movies also have, like, big people that become famous from them as well. Like, Friday the 13th, you've got Kevin Bacon, future heartthrob. But The Burning, there's someone very interesting in it who becomes a major heartthrob star. Star of TV... Seinfeld, George Costanza himself, Jason Alexander. <laughs> That's one of those cool things when you go back and watch all these old slasher movies. You see like so many actors getting their start. You just can't believe it. So there's a video game that's kind of like that that I'm obsessed with. Uh, mm. And it's kind of, it's not summer camp, but it's a bunch of like sexy young people who go to a cabin in the woods called Until Dawn, which features Oscar winner Rami Malek. <laughs> I love to see a digital Rami Malek oh pre-Oscar God. win, pre-Oscar win. We should make that clear. And Hayden Panettiere, just doing the work as always. Oh, we love Hayden. We're Hayden Panettiere and Stan and Arians, okay? We love her. <laughs> um, but as well, I just love that summer camp setting because to me, summer camp is maybe top three horror settings of all time. Might yeah. be number one. It's probably up there tied with, like, Spaceship Lost in Space for me as far as, like, horror settings go because there's something about it where there is majority kids who are helpless, teens and kids that are helpless. There's a few counsellors, there's a few camp leaders, but for the most part, there's older kids that are the authority figures and then a couple of, like, ancient crones and stuff, like, wandering around. 30-year-olds. Yeah, (laughs) Who like live at the camp. ancient 30-year-olds. <laughs> but there's like that element of danger because they've all been sent away from their parents. Their parents can't help them. They just feel abandoned out there in the woods. And I think that having this set in a summer camp setting, man, oh, man, I'm all smiles thinking about it. Yeah, I it's love scary it. as hell. Because like, you know, you go on school camp and you're like, this is going to get crazy. We're talking spin the bottle. We're talking mm-hmm. snacks in the middle of the night. You're like, this is, it's a bacchanal. You know what I mean? When you go on oh school camp. You just reminded me of one of my school camps, a guy called Ross. I'm not going to uh-huh. use his last name, but a big boy called Ross. He brought a 24 box of Krispy Kreme donuts, <laughs> refused to share them, and spent the first night of camp whining in pain in our cabin. Because he ate them all? <laughs> he ate them all. He gave one to another friend and then ate 23 by himself, just whining in pain all night long. That's what I mean, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. like camp as a kid, there's so much promise, you know? But then also, yeah, like something really terrifying about mm. being a kid and being like, oh, my parents cannot help me. I'm going to be naughty and rude, yeah. but also if something goes wrong, my parents can't help me, you know? Kind of reminded me of when I was a kid, one of my friends, Kynan, shout out to Kynan. Shout out to Kynan. His mum was a caretaker at the quarantine station in Sydney. So, Oh, my God. I just got to chill. <laughs> uh, it's like one of the most haunted places in Sydney. If you don't it know it, during kind of settlement of Sydney, it was basically for treating um, people who they, was, they suspected had the plague. So often, like, you know, people get dragged from their homes and then put in 
the quarantine station and it kind of was like used throughout the ages there's a mass grave there and it's in a, such a scary place it overlooks the most foreboding cliff like into the ocean right yeah 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 there's a whole series of books written about it called ghost boy oh <laughs> yeah yeah it's spooky it's spooky it's on sydney harbour but anyway, so my friend Kynan's mum was the caretaker there. So anytime you wanted to go hang out with Kynan, you had to go to the quarantine station, which oh. as a 10-year-old was terrifying. And he'd have his birthday parties there. And it would just be us getting like locked in dark chambers where they used to hose down people with diseases and things. Oh my word. Or like we'd go for like little walks through the old nurses' buildings and you just, oh, I'm getting chills. Ooh. Like, oh. I went to a wedding once when I was a kid at the quarantine station and I just remember walking out at night going, why don't you have your happiest day here? This is crazy. I just remember, and like Kynan's mom was like, oh yeah, definitely ghosts here. Yeah, definitely seen some stuff. And I was just like, oh cool, well I'm 10. I don't know how to deal with that. Great. Yeah. Thanks for I, having me. I also think there's something about like that ratty energy that kids have when they're all together where it's kind of like, the kids take control almost like a Lord of the Flies type thing. I remember my most prominent memory ever from a camp gen. There was this little camp that we went to in school. Not all the kids, just a few of them. And there were only two teachers there supervising us. We had like these couple of lodges, one or a few lodges, one for the teachers, one for the boys, one for the girls. And underneath the boys' cabin, we just like were looking out there one night with a torch and we had the torch go underneath and we saw this little reflection, this mirrored reflection come back and shine light at us. And it freaked us out. But then I realized I go, I know what that light is. That's a reflection of my most beloved possessions, DVDs. Oh. And so like, there's a disc underneath there. We should go get it. Cause me being the film nerd that I've been my entire life, I did bring a portable DVD player to a three-day camp. Oh, my God. So we could watch movies whenever we wanted. I could watch them on the bus. I cannot be away from movies for very long. So we're like, we can watch that. Let's go do it. And basically the entire camp, the teachers, everyone, all the students gather around as you send our smallest kid to go underneath <laughs> and grab it. Because we're like 16, but there's some younger kids at the camp mm. too. Student politics camp. Sure. <laughs> yes, I'm a nerd, okay, guys? I did student you, politics. You didn't okay? stick your head up from watching DVDs long enough to figure out why you were there. <laughs> exactly. So we send this little mini kid out to get it. And everyone's like waiting with bated breath. We're like... What's going to happen? What's going to be there? The teachers are all enthralled. Everyone's enthralled. And we just hear the kid pick up the DVD and start cackling. Like, is he screaming? What's going on? Is he okay? He comes out and shows us the disc. It says the gay team on it and has the most explicit image I've ever seen in my life (laughs) to this day. I love that someone was like, the safest place to stash this. Is under this building housing a bunch of children. <laughs> Some kid just frisbing it in like, no one can find this. <laughs> I've got to go home tomorrow. <laughs> just thinking about what you're saying about like the rat bag energy of a bunch of kids together. I reckon ghosts look at a bunch of kids and they're like, this is delicious. We're going to really ruin some lives here. (laughs) This is it. This is our big time. I think they go like, adults too hard. We've got to rack up those easy scares over the weekend. We've got all the kids here. Like they see the bus roll in and they're like, this is going to be, this is a busy week for us. This is our stock tech sale. (laughs) (laughs) It's the end of financial year. We've got to get those scares in over the line. 
I mean, it's pretty obvious, but I was absolutely delighted by this film. And I kind of can't wait to see the directions head into in part three with 1666. Because I kind of have got no idea, but I am really excited to see that setting come to life. Yeah, we do get a little teaser taste at the end of part two of what's to come. And like we were saying, it looks like it's taking us to a completely different aesthetic vibe. And I'm really excited. I don't know. It's going to be a good fear month. I think it will. And I can't wait to find more about the original witch herself, Sarah Fear. There's so much more mystery to unpack. Yeah. And there's so much more mystery around the concept of witches themselves. So next week on the Snack Edition, we're also going to be talking to a bit of a witch expert of our own, horror author, film curator, and film critic Maria Lewis, who's also one of our very best friends, be joining us to divulge the secrets of all things witchiness. Yeah, all our snack episodes this month are going to be little companions to the film. So we've got fear on the mind, basically. You can't (laughs) escape it. If you don't like spooks and thrills, then I'm sorry, honey, but this month ain't for you. And you will be freaked out. And you will be spooked. And if you're ghosts listening... I'll never forgive you for what you did at the quarantine station. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing on The Big Film Buffet, give us a five-star review. It helps us get out there in the ears of more listeners. This episode was hosted by Alexi Toliopoulos and me, Jen Fricker. Produced by Michael Sun and Anu Hasbolt. Edited by Jeffrey O'Connor. And executive produced by Tony Broderick and Melanie Martin. 